Hello! Welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I'm Dr. Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, we discuss death, attempts to conquer death, and what happens after death, all in honor of Halloween. Now, we couldn't fit everything into this particular episode, so, uh, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, if you go to mountvernon.org slash ghosts after this episode is over, uh, we have some particular treats for you. Uh, and also, as always, if you do not already subscribe to uh, this podcast, we invite you to do so, and please make sure you rate the show. To start things off, uh, let's just begin with uh, Tobias Lear, George Washington's personal secretary, recounting the death of President Washington himself. A heavy fall of snow took place on Friday, which prevented the general from riding out as usual. He had taken cold, undoubtedly from being so much exposed the day before, and complained of a sore throat. He, however, went out in the afternoon into the ground between the house and the river to mark some trees which were to be cut down in the improvement of that spot. On his retiring, I observed to him that he had better take something to remove his cold. He answered, no. You know I never take anything for a cold. Let it go as it came. Between two and three o'clock on Saturday morning, he woke Mrs. Washington and told her he was very unwell. I got up, put on my clothes as quickly as possible, and went to his chamber. I dispatched a servant instantly for Rollins and another for Dr. Craig, and returned again to General's chamber, where I found him in the same situation. Rollins came in soon, after sunrise, and prepared to bleed him. When the arm was ready, the general, observing that Rollins appeared to be agitated, said, as well as he could speak, Don't be afraid. And after the incision was made, he observed, The orifice is not large enough. However, the blood ran pretty freely. Mrs. Washington, not knowing whether bleeding was proper or not in the general situation, begged that much might not be taken from him, lest it should be injurious and desired me to stop it. When I was about to untie the string, the general put up his hand to prevent it, and as soon as he could speak, said, More, more. About half past four o'clock, he desired me to call Mrs. Washington to his bedside, when he requested her to go down into his room and take from his desk two wills which she would find there and bring them to him, which she did. About five o'clock... Dr. Craig came again into the room, and upon going to his to the bedside, the general said to him, Doctor, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. I believe from my first attack that I should not survive it. My breath cannot last long. About eight o'clock, the physicians came again into the room and applied blisters and cataplasms of wheat and bran to his legs and feet, after which they went out, except Dr. Craig, without any ray of hope. I went out about this time and wrote a line to Mr. Law and Mr. Peter, requesting them to come with their wives, Mrs. Washington's granddaughters, as soon as possible to Mount Vernon. About 10 o'clock, he made several attempts to speak to me before he could effect it. At length, he said, I am just going. Have me decently buried, and do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. I bowed assent, for I could not speak. He then looked at me again and said, Do you understand me? I replied, yes, tis well, said he. About ten minutes before he expired, which was between ten and eleven o'clock, his breathing became easier. He lay quietly. He withdrew his hand from mine and felt his own pulse. I saw his countenance change. I spoke to Dr. Crake, who sat by the fire. He came to the bedside. The general's hand fell from his wrist. I took it in mine and put it into my bosom. 
Dr. Craig put his hands over his eyes, and he expired without a struggle or a sigh. While we were fixed silent in grief, Mrs. Washington, who was sitting at the foot of the bed, asked with a firm and collected voice, Is he gone? I could not speak, but he held up my hand as a signal that he was no more. "'Tis well," said she, in the same voice. "'All is now over. I shall soon follow him. I have no more trials to pass through.'" A few days after Washington's death, uh, one of his friends, William Thornton, uh, who was a legitimately uh, nationally known uh, physician, arrived at Mount Vernon. He had heard Washington had been ill and wanted to find out if there was anything he could do. Uh, he was shocked when he arrived uh, to find, quote, wa- or find Washington, quote, laid out a stiffened corpse. My feeling at that moment I cannot express. I was overwhelmed with the loss of the best friend I had on earth, which is very touching. Uh, William Thornton, though, medical practitioner, uh, 18th century medical uh, experimenter, uh, was not so sure that this had to be permanent, though. Uh, he proposed uh, to attempt Washington's restoration uh, in the following manner. And I'm going to quote here. First to thaw him in cold water, then to lay him in blankets and by degrees and by friction to give him warmth and to put into activity the minute blood vessels, at the same time to open a passage to the lungs by the trachea and to inflate them with air, to produce an artificial respiration, and to transfuse blood into him from a lamb. If these means had been resorted to and had failed, all that could be done would have been done. But I was not seconded in this proposal, for it was deemed unavailing. I reasoned thus. He died by the loss of blood and want of air. Restore these with the heat that had subsequently been deducted, and as the organization was in every respect perfect, there was no doubt in my mind that his restoration was possible." Now, as Dr. Thornton himself mentioned uh, there, no one, Martha, not the other doctors uh, from Alexandria, no one was willing to actually try and attempt to revive George Washington days after his, his rest. And indeed, a few days after, just as George Washington had asked Tobias Lear uh, to do as a brief bit of waiting time, uh, Washington was entombed on the mansion. Well, here's the fun thing. So even after all the, you know, we, we, we've, George Washington is dead. Uh, there's been an attempt to revive him. But now a whole new fight and a whole new bit of drama uh, gets to take place over his body, uh, not for creating some sort of zombie Washington, but trying to make sure that he stays in the ground uh, or actually trying to figure out which ground he should even be uh, put in. Now, Washington in his will had specified that he wanted to be buried on site at Mount Vernon. Uh, and had even put explicit instructions in his will that a new tomb should be built. Uh, the old family tomb uh, was in not that great a shape, and, and George wanted that repaired and for himself to be put in it because he wanted to continue to reside under his, uh, and we'll use his words here, under his own vine and fig tree, uh, if you're familiar with the, the famous line in the, the uh, Hamilton musical. Uh, and it was a line that, that Washington uh, used a lot from the book of Micah in the Bible. Uh, now, Congress wasn't entirely satisfied with this plan. Uh, Congress thought that uh, 
you know, George should should be given something a little grander than just being buried at Mount Vernon. And so Congress asked Martha uh, if they could bury him in the new state or in the new national capital uh, in, 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 in a tomb in the Capitol building uh, there on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, Martha originally agreed to it, uh, but then later when she found out that, you know, some of the details of Washington's will and that he'd sort of sp- specifically said that he didn't want that, uh, she she actually got John Adams involved, who was at this point president of the United States, to, to help get Congress to back down. Uh, now, what's fun with that, though, or interesting, is that the Washington family uh, never gets around to building uh, a more elaborate tomb for a few decades. Uh, the, the the rest of the family had had not had as good of success at business operations as as George did administering Mount Vernon, uh, and so the expense that would be involved with creating a whole new family tomb and reinterring all the bodies that were inside, uh, the family was reluctant to do it. Uh, so four separate times throughout the early 19th century. Uh, Congress will approach the family and say, look, we've got a bright, shiny tomb ready to go in the United States Capitol building. Uh, and in fact, actually, to this day, you can go see uh, the tomb in the Capitol building that they had, had, had set up for Washington to be put in. Uh, the family would never go along with it because they said, well, that's not what his will specified. Uh, of course, the will also specified that they would create a new tomb, which they haven't hadn't done yet. Uh, And so this goes on all the way until the 1830s when everybody realizes something has to be done because a disgruntled former employee of John Augustine Washington II, uh, the guy who owned Mount Vernon in in 1830, uh, one of his gardeners who had recently been fired uh, decided, probably after having a few too many pints, uh, that he would get revenge on John Augustine Washington II, uh, or Jaws II, as we call him around here, because um, the sequel's never as good as the original, uh, that, that he would get, the he, the gardener, uh, would get revenge on the Washington family by stealing George Washington's head. Uh, so he breaks into the vault in the middle of the night. Uh, he takes a head, uh, which he thinks is George Washington's head, and, and runs off with it. He's apprehended in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, just a few miles away. The head is confiscated and placed back into the vault. Uh, it was not George's head. It was actually one of the relatives of uh, Bushrod Washington, uh, who, who had inherited Mount Vernon from uh, uh, George Washington. It was one of Bushrod Washington's relatives. Because uh, there were like 20-some-odd uh, bodies in the tomb, or there were there were like 20 some odd bodies in in the vault at this point. Uh, and so after, you know, essentially you've almost just lost the head of the founder of, or, you know, the father of his country, uh, Congress is like, no, seriously, you, you have to either, you know, build a more secure site or let us take it. Uh, now, this is in 18, this is in the 1830s, uh, in the early 1830s. And, and this is right uh, when there's been some, some, some discussion of states' rights versus federal rights and things are heating up. You know, you're a year away from the nullification crisis uh, between Aunt President Andrew Jackson and the state of South Carolina. And so the state of Virginia gets involved and says, well, no, George Washington does not belong to the United States. He belongs to Virginia. 
Uh, and so if Washington is going to be removed anywhere from Mount Vernon, uh, then he needs to be removed uh, probably to Richmond. Uh, but somewhere he, he definitely should not leave the borders of the old Dominion state. Uh, the family, to, to just avoid this whole potential you know, state versus federal government crisis over the body of George Washington, finally gets the money together to put a new uh, tomb together for, for George. And it's actually the tomb, if you come to Mount Vernon to this day, you can see him in. Now, interestingly, uh, this also provides an opportunity uh, for John Augustine Washington the third, uh, to sneak a peek at, at the body of George Washington. Uh, they ordered a, a fancy uh, marble sarcophagus made of Pennsylvania marble uh, that he was going to be put in. Uh, him and Martha were going to be put into new sarcophagi, which is the pool of sarcophagus that I've just learned today. Uh, he, 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 John Augustine Washington says, well, we're going we're gonna to pull George and Martha out of these lead-lined uh, tombs that they had, caskets that they had been in. Uh, and hey, while we're here, why don't I, you know, sneak a peek at my my famous relative? Uh, and they comment that the uh, the body's in pretty good shape for for being uh, you know thirty year old dead body. Uh, he, he he is struck by the size of George Washington. He says his really big head, really big feet, and really big hands. So you know if you, if you like presidents with big hands, George Washington was. Was your guy there, uh, and 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 so that's some of the craziness with the tomb, but it's not actually the last time that the whole idea of George Washington being stolen will occur. Uh, actually, in 1861, uh, right at the height of the American Civil War, uh, if you're, you know Mount Vernon is just outside of Washington D.C., so it is right on the front lines of of uh, Confederate and Union territory, uh, and and both sides will actually launch fake news. Uh, stories, one in a Richmond newspaper uh, on the Confederate side and one in a Washington, D.C. newspaper on the Union side, where the Union will declare that the Confederates have absconded with the bones of George Washington uh, and and, uh, vice versa on the other side. Um, So they're sort of even, uh, uh, you know, in propaganda arguments over like who stole Washington's bones, everyone gets really freaked out. And then everyone realizes like, no, wait, they're right here. We they, did, they didn't lose them. Uh, and, and, and that's in part because by this point in 1858, uh, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association uh, takes over Mount Vernon and explicitly demands uh, in, in the 1860s during the American Civil War that both sides regard Mount Vernon as neutral territory. We actually have letters here in, in our archives uh, from the ladies writing to both Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederacy, and Abraham Lincoln, obviously President of the United States, uh, demanding, you know, telling them that soldiers on both sides are welcome to come visit, but demanding if they do that, uh, they not show up in uniform or in uh, with any weapons, because uh, they didn't want any fighting taking place here. Uh, so the Confederates do not get the body of George Washington. But interestingly, they do uh, try to steal the spirit of George Washington and actually put George Washington on the uh, great seal of the Confederacy, the official seal of the Confederacy, uh, has George Washington. He's the little guy on the horse, which is interesting, you know, that a, a, a federal unionist uh, is used as uh, a symbol for the Confederacy. Uh, and so, yeah, by that point, the ladies are in charge, and uh, at least the body of George Washington uh, remains safely secure in the vaults here. Uh, but there are some questions about the spirit of George Washington. 
1896, Mrs. William Beale and her sister spent the night in Mount Vernon uh, and actually even slept in the bed that George Washington died in. Uh, and they had a pretty interesting experience that they'd like to tell you about. A night in the historic Mount Vernon home. What an adventure! My close friend, who is a member of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, a group of fine women who have come together to preserve General George Washington's home, allowed myself and my dear sister to stay in the mansion for a night's respite from our travels. Now, normally the mansion is only open to the ladies themselves. During their yearly seven-night visit, the ladies continually work to preserve the mansion, an admirable feat of which they have achieved great success. Each member of the association has a bedchamber or room that they decorate with their state's objects as well as any Washington artifacts that survive. There are more bedrooms than we could count. And though many were available, we decided to both stay in the General and Lady Washington's bedchamber. Mrs. Beale told me the ladies all stay in various rooms in the mansion, and her close friend Mrs. Richardson of Louisiana stays in the Washington's bedchamber, which is who suggested we stay in the same room. She said the bed was most comfortable out of all of them, and the room the warmest. It gets quite cold in the drafty old house. We are not supposed to light any fires, and at night can only light one candle. I personally believe that the house contains plenty of spirits. It is nearly 200 years old, and must hold countless stories within the walls. After a day of sightseeing and visits with some of the ladies, we turned in for bed. Mrs. Thomas suggested lighting a candle in hopes of breaking up some of the darkness and allowing us an easy trip to bed. We both fell asleep quickly, until... The candle snuffed out. The noise was so sharp we both awoke with a start. The candle was on my side of the bed, in a bowl of water as to not let it tip over and light anything on fire. I thought the candle might have tipped over, but it was standing straight as could be. Both Mrs. Beale and I were quite frightened. Before coming up with any rational explanation, Mrs. Beale said... (gasps) You are on the side of the bed where Washington died! And I, of course, not wanting to believe she had any idea what she was talking about, said, No, I'm not. He died on your side. Of course, neither of us actually knew. And considering this was the original bed frame, we did not want to find out. After sitting in the darkness for a moment, Mrs. Beale suggested... Sister, light another candle. Well, before I could even think to step out of bed, we heard a creak of a floorboard. Mrs. Thomas and I sat stone still waiting for the noises to stop. Now, I am a skeptic by nature. I've never been one to believe in seances or any of that kind of nonsense. But the room felt even cooler than before. And when the floorboard creaked again, we looked at each other and back towards the noise. A clash of metal clanked after the second creak of the floorboard. Looking back, it might have been the wind shaking the shutters because, as I said before, it is a drafty old house. However, I do not believe my eyes deceived me. In the corner of the room, standing ramrod straight, was the general himself. He did not seem to be looking at us but above our heads. His sword hung at his side, and he wore his blue and gold commander's uniform. His arms were crossed, and he looked as somber as in the portraits. My dear sister shrieked and fell backwards into the bed. I stayed as still as could be, and while Mrs. Thomas was quite loud, the general did not seem to take notice. He walked forward a bit, but still stared above our heads. Eventually, as though he was a candle flame burning on its last bit of wick, he flickered in and out until he was gone. Throughout the night, we both sat waiting for him to return. Unfortunately, the only sounds were the scratching of mice. Likely the same mice that Martha Washington trapped. And the wind rattling the shutters against the mansion. Needless to say, I told Mrs. Richardson after the fact, and she couldn't believe it. 
She said other ladies have mentioned some ghosts and spirits, but she herself hadn't ever experienced a visit from the general. I told Mrs. Beale that if we ever decide to go visit our brother in Washington again, we will not be staying at Mount Vernon. We still don't know why he chose us to visit, but we hope it doesn't happen to anyone else. Maybe we should let the poor general rest. And just to wrap things up, you know, we we often get asked uh, here at Mount Vernon, you know, for amongst the staff, are, are, is, are things haunted? Uh, and, when I, and uh, you know, again, we, we have a whole web page that you're going to be able to go to uh, to check out this. But we thought we'd share one sort of really interesting story that we found when going through uh, some of the archives here uh, from 1980s by a Miss Shirley Kinnear uh, who worked at Mount Vernon for many years. I was in the Central Passage on a particularly cloudy day in the spring or summer. I heard someone in the little parlor... Thinking that a visitor had gotten into the area by going under the rope barriers in the large dining room, I entered the room to shoo them off. Much to my surprise, I found an older gentleman, sporting a large mustache and dressed in late 19th or early 20th century clothing, with his sleeves rolled up and secured with garters. When he saw that he had my attention, he shouted, What the hell is going on here? In reference to the noise a school group or groups were making, I told him that I was trying to quiet them down, and then the man disappeared. I later saw a portrait of the gentleman in question. It was Colonel Harrison Howell Dodge, who was Mount Vernon's director for about 50 years until his death in the late 1930s. Now, I can't promise that when you come, you will have any, any sort of paranormal experiences at Mount Vernon. Uh, and, and honestly, as the estate's gotten ever busier, there seem to be less and less uh, stories in some ways, uh, especially from the general public that, that come by. Uh, you know, we want to, though, there are some, some stories that some of the staff uh, that have been here a little after hours and stuff have contributed, and you can find those on mountvernon.org slash ghosts. Uh, after you rate... Uh, and and subscribe to this podcast, obviously, if you haven't done so already. Uh, you know, special thanks today. Uh, you know, this is one of our first times we've actually done a big produced show like this. Uh, so, uh, the voice of Tobias Lear, that was actually our producer, Anthony King. He finally got his chance in front of the microphone. Uh, big thanks to Samantha Snyder and Catherine Horn, uh, our, our, some of our library team uh, that were the, uh, the Beale sisters. Uh, Kayla Redard, our intern, uh, played the voice of uh, Mrs. Uh, Shirley Kinnear. And then uh, Dana Stefanelli, the, uh, you might remember him as the editor of the George Washington Papers, was super excited. We finally let him get paid to curse, uh, especially on record. Uh, and he was the, uh, the infamous voice of Colonel Dodge. Uh, so thanks again for you all listening to the show. We hope you join us next time.